Welcome to the Atlas Air Guns Podcast. On this episode, we talk to Dave, also known as Four Shooting on Instagram. We talk to Dave about his professional career, how he got into shooting, AFTA, and of course, his love for Day State Red Wolf. If you like shooting competitively or have followed along with the crossover episodes with Brian, John, Joe, Tun, and Christian, then this episode is for you. Nice having you on. Oh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, Brian advocated for you. I think I he wanted me to fill out the whole little pack you guys had at at EBR. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he's definitely a, one of the team supporters. So where are you located? So I'm located uh Modesto area, Modesto, California, okay. Central Valley. I go over yeah. to Chowchilla quite a bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, only about, oh, that's about an hour and a half down the road. Yeah, so what do you shoot over there? Uh, as for animals or, uh, sport? Well, let's do both. Why not? <laughs> We're just shooting the breeze, by the way. I mean, I have no script here, so yeah, let's do both. Yeah. So, uh, I started out in air gunning there probably about seven years ago and started shooting field target. And, uh, my brother got me into it and I started out with a club here in the area, SAC. Romano Valley Field Target Club, and we usually shoot up in Ione or up at the Yolo shooting range up in Davis. And so I shoot a lot of field target, started out shooting open class, and then kind of moved over to the WFTF style, so where you're shooting 12 foot-pounds and under. And uh, so, yeah, uh, I do that. Uh then I started getting into EBR, NARMAC type stuff, Ventura shooting, speed shooting, and uh, kind of moved from there. And what did you do as a profession? So I'm semi-retired. So I retired in 2016 for, as a police officer for the city of Modesto. I did almost 25 years with them. And then after being retired for a couple months, I actually got approached by the Stanislaus County, which is where Modesto is located, uh, their auto theft task force, which is called STANCAT, short for Stanislaus County Auto Theft Task Force. And it's a, a task force of agencies throughout the county that provide officers or detectives to investigate and arrest auto theft offenders. So I had done that before at Modesto PD for about five years. And when I retired, they hit me up to see if I would be willing to come back as a contract employee for the sheriff's department and help them out doing their technical stuff at the task force. So a non-enforcement position. I work three days a week. Um, and I do all their tech stuff. So I build their bait cars and work on any technical things they have. I'll work on undercover cars, put in the lighting and stuff like that. And then when I'm not doing that, then I go out and help them on surveillance and look for stolen vehicles. So it's a uh, pretty fun, 
fun excitement. And I've uh, been doing that for five years. Yeah, it sounds like all the fun without any of the liability and stress, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm I'm there. I'll block traffic for them at the end, and then I'll go in and help with any paperwork, interviews, and uh, get the cars back to the victims. Do you have any uh, crazy stories, like the craziest carjacking story that you can think of? <laughs> uh, there's a lot of them. Uh, let's say an old one, not, nothing, nothing recent. Oh, let's see. Uh, man, there are so many of them because a lot of them really end up crazy. We've uh, so back when I did it. Uh, let's just say it was around. 2000 when I was over doing auto theft as an officer for Modesto, we got all our bait cars at that time from California hybrid patrol. And we would leave them out 24 hours a day for a month straight. And so we would be out and about and leave our cars, scatter them throughout the County. And unbeknownst to us one night, the computer went down and all of our cars were stolen almost at one time and we had no communications with them and so we had to uh enter all of our bait cars as stolen vehicles because we didn't know where they were and uh we actually were able to recover them all within 12 hours mostly in one piece but uh that was kind of crazy to lose six seven cars at one shot that was coordinated no it was just a the hard drive went out in the laptop we used to control them they just happened to all go at the same time so when people steal a car like grand theft auto what what do they do if they're like a professional thief a professional thief isn't usually targeting our bait vehicles uh our bait vehicles are the most popularly stolen cars at the time. So it could be a Chevy truck, a Ford diesel truck. It could be a Honda an Acura. Um, so we usually catch the people that are like opportunist that just use it for a ride, use it to go steal the stereo out of it, take something out of it, use it for a ride across town and then just dump it and go. A professional thief is going to take the car and, and usually strip it out. What does that entail? So stripping it out would be that they take your car or truck. Trucks, mostly trucks these days are popular. A lot of uh, diesel trucks, Fords. And uh, they'll take them and they will we'll take the diesel engine out of them, the transmission, and obviously nowadays the catalytic converters, if they're equipped with them. And uh, then they just dump the empty hole on the side of the roll, road. And uh, they take the parts and put them in whatever they need them for or sell them, sell them on offer up or Craigslist or something like that. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it makes it hard to catch them, but eventually they all get caught. Is there any, I mean, I've heard that the, the VIN numbers are all over the place. So there's no, I mean, the whole thing that they portray in movies where they strip it out and then paint it, give it a good fresher paint. That's all BS, right? <sighs> It will get past uh, some people, but it does not get past us because we know where all the hidden VIN numbers are. 
And if they happen to find all of them and grind them off, that's another thing I do, uh, is I will restore the VIN numbers using ACID or whatever means it takes to restore the numbers. And I can pull those numbers back up, even though they're ground off, and identify the parts. Oh, and wow. then arrest the person. Is there ever any situation where someone will have a stolen part in another car and then they get into legal trouble, even though it had nothing to do with them, like someone else put it in the car, sold it to them, and then they get implicated? Or is it enough removed that the stolen items there, the property, but there's no, obviously there's no legal way to put put it on them in a direct sense, right? Right. So there, there are innocent purchasers that end up buying parts along the way. There are a lot of hot rod builders end up buying engines and transmissions. Like, uh, uh, at a newer... like, like John. <laughs> right. Like John, <laughs> uh, you know, put it, uh, a hopped up engine, you know, say a, fu- a, a modern fuel injected engine, computer controlled in their older vehicle. And they really have no way of knowing about it until they put all the parts together. And then a lot of times they'll have to go over to California High Patrol and get what they call a VIN verification. And when they go in there to do that, then we'll be called over there or one of the VIN officers at CHP will go over there and check the numbers. And it's like, mm, this engine was stolen or this transmission was stolen or this part was stolen. and then we go over there and we talk to the people and find out where they got all the parts from. And most legitimate hot rod builders keep track of all their receipts because someday down the road, they may want to sell it, you know, so they want to have a documentation of their build. And so they can use it to provide where they got all that from. And then we can track that back to the person that may have actually stolen it. But unfortunately, it puts that good person in a bad spot because we're going to have to take that engine or transmission. Oh, man, that's crazy. And yeah. So you and must be pretty mechanical then working on all these different cars and knowing the insides of cars. Uh, I am. I, I have a, a pretty extensive mechanical background from when I was a kid. Uh my dad and grandfather ran a water well drilling business. And so from a young age, I'd be out helping them working on trucks and uh, doing maintenance and welding and fabrication. And so, yeah, I, I have a lot of uh, mechanical background. Uh, I built, built my own vehicles. Uh, I built a vehicle from scratch for a TV show with a couple buddies from work. And uh, I've got welders. I've got CNC plasma tables here. So I I basically build any part that I need for anything that I'm working on or building. So this probably helped you for the higher end rifles that you're working on. I saw your Instagram <laughs> where you had a rip, ripped apart Red Wolf, which is just a beautiful rifle. I mean... Heck, it's like one of the probably the most beautiful rifle I can think of. And I'd just be so scared to open that thing up. And I saw that ripped apart. And I was like, man, he's he's got some cojones. <laughs> well, yeah. Fortunately, uh I I kind of knew how to tear into it and take it apart because uh John Bagakis 
helped me at EBR in my first year there, I developed a leak and we took it back to the house and tore it apart on the kitchen counter and completely rebuilt it and put it back together and then shot it the next day. And so I, I learned to take it apart from the help of John. And then after that, it's really not that complicated for me. Once I do something once, I can, uh, you know, do it again and hopefully get every, every part back in there. What was your first EBR year? So my first EBR year was like 2018, and I just went as a spectator. And I, I had also, I had known John Bagakis from shooting field target with him over here in the, in the area. So I went over there and watched him. And then while I was wandering around talking to people, I happened to meet Joe Ray. And then we kind of hit it off. And uh, so that was my first year. And then I went ahead and came back the next year and actually shot it. So that'd be 2019. Do you like the extreme field target that they do there? Oh, I love the extreme field target. I did the spectating thing before last year, and I don't know if I'm going to do it this year competing, I mean, but I, I'll probably be there as a spectator. But that extreme field target looks super fun. Every time I look at it, I'm like, man, that's just unhinged, crazy cool. Oh, it is. It's just a giant version of field target. Uh, I had actually, before I shot it, I had never shot off of sticks or, you know, the uh, bipod sticks in a bucket. Um, and you need it out there because some of the targets are so low down there that you really can't sit on the ground like I do in my normal field target position. So shooting off buckets and sticks was an interesting thing to get used to, but it is so fun. You hitting a target out there at a hundred yards and you hit it and it's like, Oh, I didn't get it. And then it just taking the time for the momentum to bring down that big chunk of steel. So you placed pretty well this last year with extreme field target, right? I did. Uh, in the uh, sniper class, which is 22 caliber and under, I took second place behind uh, John. And my f so I had to shoot pro class uh, this, this last year. But my first year, I shot sportsman class. And I also took, I think I took a third. I took a third that year in field target. So what kind of scope are you running for that field target? Because field target scopes are always, you know, a little more parallax based. And I saw the one at EBR that you had with the, I think, handwritten in sticker on the top. And I took a picture of that. Is that the same scope? Yeah. So uh, it's actually the same scope that I've, I use the same scope in field target uh, prior. I don't right now, but it's a Cytron. It's a 10 to 50 with a 60 millimeter objective and it'll parallax all the way down to 10 yards for focusing for my normal field target. And, uh, it is, yeah, the Cytron just been a great scope. It, it ranges good for me. Um, but that's what I use since I have it for EBR. I use it for the extreme field target. I use it for the bench rest. I use it for speed. I use it for everything. So when you're a cop, you obviously had to, you know, discharge your weapon, whatever the amount of times, like 30 times a month or whatever the requirement is. Did you start out on pistols and stuff like that? Or did you just jump kind of straight into air guns as a, as a sport? 
No, I, I started out on, on powder burners, as everybody likes to refer to them. So my dad was always a big Second Amendment firearms guy. He's had his concealed weapons back in the day from, oh, I don't know, that was back in the 70s, you know. And so he taught my brother and I how to shoot firearms. And so I started out with pistols, and then I'd shoot some some rifle centerfire rifle um and i i started getting into a lot of pistol shooting started shooting i saw some of the police olympics like uh it's kind of like an ipsic type shooting running and gunning did that uh, got into firearms instructing at the department i did that for many years i was a simulator instructor we had a simulator trailer where you would take your your normal duty firearm and loaded up with frangible ammunition. And we had a trailer that was 50 feet long and you would shoot inside the trailer at a, at a screen. And it would record your hits during your scenario that you're playing on your screen. And so we would travel around with that and, and teach other agencies on use of force and stuff like that. Is it, is there any crossover on just trigger time practice that you got previously and now? You know, all trigger time is good, and it all comes back to the basics. You need to be smooth, squeeze the trigger, reset, squeeze the trigger, and, you know, have the same movements straight back and forth on your trigger so you're not milking it, you're not pulling it you're not pushing it with your finger too far in on the trigger blade so it it i believe it it's helped me when i switch over to air guns obviously with just the mechanics of being able to you know control the trigger control your control your breath and you know break good clean shots and not anticipate or jerk or pull obviously with air guns you don't have the recoil, so you know the anticipation of of the recoil is not not a big deal. But just the same mechanics, of making sure your finger's not too deep on it, to where you're kind of pulling off to the side a little bit and affecting your muzzle. You know, make sure you got a straight back and forth break on the trigger. I saw that you were shooting. I think it was an HW thirty up in the Sierras. I think it was the Sierras. And it was. Yeah, and there's obviously the record trigger on that. It's just a great trigger. What's your favorite triggers that you come across? Well, my favorite one has to be the Red Wolf. It's so predictable. It's always the same. It's so adjustable. And I don't even know what my trigger breaks at because I don't have a trigger scale. But it's definitely in the ounces. And uh, so that's the best trigger. And it really feels like to me, a normal trigger. I I have a USFT. Are you familiar with that? Uh, no, uh, I, I am not. So uh, it's a Mac one USFT. It's a field target rifle, and it's a mechanical trigger. But that one's also set to ounces, and it feels just as good. Or my Red Wolf trigger feels just as good and normal as that does. Everybody thinks that just because it's an electronic platform that it's a mouse click. Well, technically, it's, it is. It's just 
activating a switch inside there. But the mechanics that they have to make it activate that makes it feel like a normal trigger. Like if you set up a match grade trigger. I also have a Stire, uh, LG 110, and the, the trigger's very similar to that, except better. It's always smooth. The Mach 1, I th that's what you said, right? Uh, it, it's called a Mach 1 USFT. And that's not, is that the guy that makes his own custom guns, kind of like Thomas Air? Yes. So this guy is uh, it's a smaller Tim, business, right? Right. Tim McMurray down in Huntington Beach or somewhere down there in SoCal. And he's been around for a couple decades now, right? For decades. As a matter of fact, with one of his rifles, he won uh, one of the first EBRs, if not the first EBR. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think I've come across his website a few times and I've looked at them. They're like specialty builds, but they're single load and they have a little interesting action on the back, right? They do. The The action has a little bolt handle on it and it swings open. You load your pellet directly in the end of the barrel and then you close the bolt and then the air goes through the bolt and projects the uh, pellet out the end of the barrel. It's a similar but different design from like the uh thomas rifle right the way it loads and the breach that's interesting i i always when i looked at it in the past i kind of think it's you know what steampunk is i feel like younger kids were into that <laughs> but there's a little bit of that that it's like steampunky i can see that it's 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 more of the function and not the beauty of it but uh it's definitely interesting every time i'm looking at it, i'm like that's very steampunky but i can see how it's a you know a build around function and and winning that was probably like the second field target rifle I ever got. And I got it from my brother. Uh, and in my first year of trying field target, I went and competed in nationals, the national field target event by AFTA. And it happened to be over in Arizona at uh, the same range where EBR is held at Rio Salado. And I shot that Mac one USFT and I actually tied for fifth place with it. Uh, in my first year of competitive shooting oh, and wow. then I lost in a shoot off, <laughs> but, but it, sh it shoots well. Yeah. The, the, the form, that's the word I was thinking that it misses on the form, but wins on the function. So the red wolf obviously has both the form and the function going on. Why did you pick that platform as your go-to, you know, creme de la creme air gun? So when I started hanging out with John, he had one and I had shot it. And it's like, wow, this is really nice. And it's like, man, I don't know, the electronics, you know, I mean, I just wasn't sure about the electronics. And he's like, I've never had a problem with it. And I started doing my research on it. And Day States had a electronic operated rifle for, I don't know, 10, 15, 18 years. And I looked at the problems people had, and there really weren't any. And it's like, well, I, I really like the looks of the rifle. It's the cream de la creme. So I contacted AOA and I bought myself one. And it's like, man, this thing is like the Cadillac or the Ferrari, actually. Yeah, it's funny. I similarly looked up issues that people might have had. I couldn't find any other than like the just the random like one once in a blue moon someone has something. I don't think it was anything electronic. I still feel weird, though about anything electronic on any rifle and that's just my personal bias and i it has nothing to do and not based on any actual factual issue 
that I've ever seen on any gun that I can think of, but it just, it just the weird thing is in my mind. I'm like, I don't want something electronic on it, but I couldn't find anything. No, I, they, they really have no issues. I mean, the issue people might have is if they put an aftermarket board in there, like one of the, uh, the Greek helleboards, which are great, but you have to remember to turn it off because it doesn't automatically time out. So if they leave it on, it will drain the battery down and kill the battery and you have to get another uh, lipo battery for it. But other than that, electronically, I've had no issues with it. The only thing I've done is reseal it. Just put new O-rings in like you have to do with any other PCP. The only thing I've ever seen with Daystate was the Delta Wolf, right? When it came out, there's a couple of chronographs that popped off from a few of my friends that had bought that. Uh, but they had a three-year warranty, so they sent it back and you know it got fixed right away. But I think there's something to do with a chronograph on the shroud or something like that. But I think that issue got resolved like probably within the first batch being sent from the UK. I think that because they were running sub 12 or lower power in the UK, they probably their testing they did probably wasn't as pronounced as it was and thorough as it was here in the United States. Yeah. When you send them over here and you're running 60, 70, 80 foot pounds, you know, because that's what everybody's shooting over here nowadays because they want to shoot slugs and everything like that. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit harder on guns and, and seals and mechanics because you're really ramping it up. Yeah, and that's like to, exponentially to exponentially harder on the gun. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's much harder on the seals. And, I mean, that translates down, down the barrel of the chronograph because you do have air pressure that's getting stripped off that's within that shroud. Uh, I don't have a Delta Wolf, but I have shot John's and uh, it shot well. My brother bought one. Uh, he had a 12 foot pound one and uh, he enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, uh, I mean, just like anything else, I mean, as soon as something new comes out, you're going to have problems that you never, you never tested for. So what's your impressions of the Delta Wolf? I still see people buying the Red Wolf instead of the Delta Wolf more often. Why do you think that is? And do you think it's just an aesthetic thing? Or do you think it just people are just unfamiliar with the Delta platform? You know, I, I think it's just personal preference. And I only base that on what I read a lot on the forums. When people talk about them, they go, yeah, I like it, but I don't really like a bullpup design. Or I don't really like the black rifle design or, you know, so they want to go with a more traditional woodstock rifle looking rifle. So I think that that probably is why you're selling more of the Red Wolves. And I mean, I can't blame them. I mean, the Red Wolves, great. I mean, it, it, it looks good. It feels good. It shoots great off a bench. I mean, I, that I'm, my mind might be changed if, if I ended up with a Delta Wolf and set it up you know, correctly and, and started playing with it. But uh, I, I like a traditionally Woodstock rifle, you know, and it works well. I mean, my, my field target gun now that I use is a Red Wolf, but it's the LPR version, which is in a wood, Woodstock, a gray Woodstock. It's all chopped up and modified for field target. Yeah, I don't so know if you see It's pretty short barrel too, right? It's very short-barreled. It's the one that Lauren Parsons had her input on uh, with Daystate, having it kind of designed as, as a traditional WFTF field target rifle. And it's just, it just perfect. 
you know, it has all the adjustability you need and a nice short package and not, not the long barrel. Of course, for field target, I shoot 12 foot pounds and uh, I can adjust mine up to 20 foot pounds if I want to shoot an open class with it, with, with a programmer, I can tune it up. Uh, one of the questions I had for you is, so how is the programming on the Delta Wolf and the Red Wolf? You've had some experience with that, obviously, with your Red Wolf. What is that like for the person that doesn't have a day state and doesn't know anything about it? What is that like, and what's the functionality out in the field? What what benefits do you get out of that? So uh, I have a programmer for it, and I actually contacted a gentleman over in the U.K., Unfortunately, he passed away this last year, Mark Shanana, and I talked at great length with him over months and months on how to properly tune the Red Wolf with the external programmer. And he walked me through it and gave me very detailed descriptions on what points you want to adjust it. And once he explained it to me and... I actually started doing it myself. It was not that hard. It was very easy to program. And I was able to get a great spread on it and shot count. I was able, after tuning with him via via WhatsApp, on mine, I was able to get 48 or 52 shots out of a fill at... 58 foot pounds is this a 22 with, with the 22 yeah and i think i only had an 16 foot per second spread over that 50 shots so i i was very happy with that uh if anybody has a red wolf and they're interested in his method of programming on Aragon nation under the knowledge section there's a post on the, I think it's titled The Proper Way to Tune a Red Wolf or Program a Web Red Wolf. He posted detailed instructions on there, and that's the method I use and the method John uses for tuning to get a nice uh, flat shot string and get your most shots. And uh, it's it's not bad at all. I mean, if even if you didn't use that method, you could play around with some of the other methods Ergens Arizona has some tuning tutorials on YouTube and it's not really that hard to do. You just plug it into your gun, set up on the bench and get a pile of air and pellets ready and uh, start plugging in the numbers until you get the velocity you want. So you have the red wolf and you have the, the other red wolf, the gray one for field right. target. Is that the LRT? Uh, LPRs. LPR. It's actually short for uh, Lauren's, Lauren Parsons rifle. Ah, that's <laughs> smart of her to do that. <laughs> you always want to name something out for yourself, you know. Um, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, the question I have is, what other rifles do you shoot? So that's basically all I shoot nowadays. I, I still have my USFT that I actually had rebarreled for twenty caliber by our one of our club members, actually, our club president here at Sac Valley, Scott Schneider. He's on the forum as Motorhead. Yeah, I know him. He's a funny guy. Yeah, so he tuned it up and, and put a twenty caliber barrel on it. So I have that if I want to play in open class and you know, 20 foot pounds. I actually have it leaned up here in my 
office that I'm sitting in right now. And I keep it here with a pellet pouch just in case I need to snipe a bird or something out here and off the front porch. But uh, so I've got that. I still have my original Steyr LG 110 that I had bought from uh, one of our other club members, uh, Riz Marquez, who's a nationally ranked field target shooter. I mean, we've, we've got a lot of great shooters and a lot of support that I can reach out to in this area here for any help. You know, I mean, you've got Scott Schneider, you've got Riz, you've got, uh, I mean, I could reach out and send a message to Tony Bielis at Day State if I needed any help right now. Uh, the Sacramento field target team is pretty big. That that little facility you guys have there, right? Uh, yeah, there's probably, usually at a normal monthly match, you'll end up with 15 to 20 some people there. What do they but call we what all, do they call those chapters, the AFTA chapters that you have? So it's basically AFTA is the American uh, Field Target Association that regulates the rules in Field Target. And so you have I don't know, they're not really called chapters, they're just local clubs that are uh, members of AFTA. So you could put on a match, a two day Grand Prix match and you're within after regulations as long as you follow their rules. We also have another one the same distance away, an hour away from me, is the uh, Diablo Field Target Club, which is over in Concord. Okay, I've seen that around on the on the forums and stuff. So when you're a club putting on these AFTA events, how does that bleed into the national circuit, out of curiosity? So to for it to bleed in and have anything to do with AFTA or the AFTA standings, you have to put on a two-day event like they did over Morro Bay. And it you have to have a two-day event. You have to have a course that is at least, I believe, 104 shots between the two days. And it has to, all the targets have to be set within after specifications, which let's say you can't put a one inch kill zone at 55 yards because it's too hard. So they have, they say you can only have an inch and a half from 55 to 45 yards. Then you can have a one inch or an inch and an eighth between this distance and this distance, and then no smaller than three eighths at 10 yards to say 15 yards. So if you hold a two-day event, then everybody's scores get tallied and they get sent to AFTA and AFTA keeps track of that and ranks you throughout the year on how you do. And then by the end of the year, if you compete in three Grand Prix events, then you will be ranked nationally for the year. So, okay. So three, three Grand Prix, you get ranked nationally for the year and then there's also the international scene. How does that get bled into the international scene? Sorry, I'm trying to get all this out of you, but I think there's a lot of people that just don't know anything about field target. They've asked me, so I mean, it's a good opportunity to kind of explain things. So how does that bleed into the international scene? So in the interna international scene, you've got Team USA, which when you go into the international scene, it's only WFTF. So it's only 12 foot pounds and under. So... Anybody shooting hunter class or 
open class or anything above 12 foot pounds is not it's it's not considered for ranking or consideration to go shoot on team usa so for team usa to go to the world events they're looking at shooters who have a prior history prior uh, what did I say, want to say using the sub rankings sub 12 the whole time too sub 12 sub 12 the whole time so yeah if to be considered for that you have to be sub 12 ranking and have done well done well at the gp events and then maybe if you've shot prior at worlds then that goes in consideration you have to have a lot of availability, obviously, to travel all throughout the states and to compete in these events, unless it's just three that you have to compete in. It's it's just three. It's just three to get your ranking. Obviously, the more you go to, the better chance you have of having a good day or a bad day. Right. So if, you, mean, did, you, could, if you did 10 events, then you're going to be pretty good standing if you've had an outstanding year. Right. So, but they really, so they'll look at your... If you did 10 events, they only look at your three highest events for the year. So okay. they take your top three finishes. So obviously you that's do a, the math. That's a lot more reasonable, though, than saying you have to travel around and hit every event to actually participate yeah. on that level, you know? Yeah, and, and like for me out here, there's plenty of uh, Grand Prix events to get your three matches in to be ranked. I mean, you've got Moro Bay... You've got Oregon, you've got uh, down in L.A., down at Casa, and then you've got, it's actually being held this weekend over back at Rio Salado in Arizona. They're holding the Sonora Desert Grand Prix. and uh, The Oregon place is ran by Wayne, correct? Correct. Yeah, he's really nice. I talked to him for a little bit, and really nice guy. Um, he has a whole facility to actually train people there, right? That's what I understand. I've actually never shot at his match. I've shot with Wayne quite a bit, but I've never been up to his property. It just never worked into my schedule. And it's really not that far of a drive, you know, five and a half hours. Can you give a flyby explanation for the audience what field target is? I mean, from the just very rudimentary, how the physics of it, what the course is like, just, I mean, flyby like couple minute, couple minute explanation. Sure. So field target is basically shooting at distances from 10 yards to 55 yards. The yardages are unknown. So the targets are set out on the course and they are generally animal shaped targets with kill zones from three eighths of an inch up to inch and a half to maybe two inches. And as long as you get your pellet through that hole, the target will fall down and then you have a string sitting next to you and you use that string to reset it back up. If you hit outside of the small hole, then it hits just the faceplate or the shape of the animal and it will not let the target fall down. And you could shoot it from multiple positions. So if you shoot a hunter class, you're used sitting on a stool or a bucket and you use a bipod. And on hunter class, you can only use 16 power scope. So it makes it much harder to range find. And you cannot click your turrets. You have to use holdover. 
to where when I shoot WFTF style or open class, I can wear a shooting jacket and I sit on a bum bag and the only thing to support the rifle is my body. So with that, you sit down and I'm able to use a scope up to, well, whatever power I choose. And the higher power scope you use, the easier it is to determine your range. And depending on the quality of the scope, you're able to usually estimate your range within a yard or two. At closer yardages with higher power scopes, it's very easy to figure out your range. But once you get out past 45 yards, it's a little bit harder. And so you end up with that one, one, one and a half yard difference, if, if you guess it correctly, when you're doing your focus. So in a field target event, you'll usually have 50 shots, maybe 48, maybe 60, depends on uh, the match director who runs the club. And within that course, you'll have to have some force positions. And by force positions, that means a certain number of shots have to be shot standing or offhand, and a certain number of shots can be shot kneeling. And kneeling shots, your rifle still has to be supported only by your hands. You can't lay your rifle across your knee or anything like that. And um, so you have to shoot a certain number of those positional shots, as they call them, which are usually what gets people. If you don't practice offhand a lot, you're going to struggle with the offhand portion of it because there's no way to get completely steady when you're shooting offhand. You're just kind of wobbling around the kill zone until you think your crosshairs are going to pass by the, about the middle of it and then you break the trigger. And so usually somebody that practices a lot of offhand is going to be tough to beat and really good with offhand. But uh, that's kind of the basics of field target. Um, and then it's you said fine. hunter field targets mixed in with that. Just it has a 16 power scope. You can sit and have those kind of opportunities. And you don't have to wear the jacket, right? Right. So with hunter field target, you're not allowed to use any aids. So you can't use a harness or a jacket or any gloves or anything like that. But you, I mean. They're usually you, ran with the. Uh, Normal field target, right? Right. So it's just different classifications, uh, different uh, classes that you shoot with. So, yeah, I'll have a hunter field target guy shooting with me. So usually have two people squatted together and you run through the course together. There are usually two targets per lane. You shoot each target twice and then move to the next target. And so I'll many times have a hunter shooter shooting with me. And so when you do that, the hunter shooter will shoot first. That way he can't get any information from me shooting first to figure out the ranges. And you'll see that in worlds. Some guys, they won't put yardage on their parallax wheel. They'll just put shapes or two lines, three lines, that uh, they have their own method of figuring it out. It's just so people can't look at it and figure it out. Right, like a secret code. There's yeah. that, uh, I think, Orlando, Florida, 
I think I heard this that they they taught Klingon at this at the university there, <laughs> and obviously it was I think because they specialize in a lot of Hollywood education there, because there is Universal Studios and stuff like that. But someone told me they did Klingon. I doubted it, and I looked it up, and sure enough, they had a full Klingon course. Like, <laughs> man, that's that's pretty that's pretty funny. But yeah, I could imagine putting Klingon on there that way, no one could figure it out. Um, so field target, that's really cool. I think that's, a, that's, I've never done it, but I've, I've witnessed it obviously. And I was watching, uh, Wayne and others in the Mora Bay match, but I knew a little bit about it, but it's nice to get a more thorough explanation. So do you feel like there should be more events kind of like the extreme field target that AOA puts on at extreme bench rest? Well, I don't think so right now because there are a lot of people starting them. So Wayne is running a extreme fire field target event uh, coming up soon. So he runs one there. They're running a course down in Phoenix at the Phoenix Rod and Gun Club. I think Ben Spencer's running that one. They've got the Texas one that they're running. And I is that the gonna... Tex-Mex or there's some funny name yeah. to it? Yeah. Yeah. Tex-Mex or Tech or something. Okay. Yeah, I, something like that. I should look it up, but I saw that I think a couple months ago or last month. There are more and more of them starting up, so I think we're we're looking pretty good right now. And actually, they're starting kind of their own thing with the Grand Prix series, where if you make it to two events, then those points carry over into Extreme Benchrest uh, field, Extreme Field Target. As the sports growing, is it? are you seeing any difficulty actually hosting these events and being able to host the number of people or is there just more events popping up to, to actually facilitate those new shooters? I think there's just more events popping up to facilitate them. I don't think it, it's a, it's a lot of work definitely to put on one of these events. I mean, extreme bench rest is huge and they've got their entire staff and volunteers and everything out there running around for the week before setting up and arranging things. I mean, it, it's, it's very big deal logistically wise to make an event like that go off. I mean, uh, even the, the local club events, I mean, it takes some time to set up your course in the morning when you get there, depending on how many people actually want to volunteer and get there early to help set it up. But it's, uh, it, it's very time consuming and labor intensive. I held an event out here at my, place for just the local guys and it was kind of a pain <laughs> i get out there and make sure all the all the grass is mowed in the orchard i make sure that the uh everything's set up and the strings are set up i mean it's just very time consuming what kind of awkwardness do you see for new shooters that have come from the powder burning and they're starting out in field target they're kind of new to that scene because when you go to a field target shooting arena where there's lanes on both sides it's very different from the standard shooting range where everyone's lined up muzzle facing one direction do you ever see any kind of weird stuff happening where people just don't know what's what's going on i think that probably keeps a lot of new shooters from coming out and trying field target i know even coming from my shooting background when my brother got me into field target it's like well, what do I do? He's like, oh, it's easy. You just, you know, use your parallax and you focus down and, and figure this out. I was like, well, I don't have any idea what I'm doing. He's like, here, I'll, I'll, I'll find a club for you to shoot at. And, and he contacted our local club and 
he actually came up and shot with me my first match. And uh, it's just people not knowing what to do. And I'd recommend to anybody that's even interested, in it, just show up at one of the events and watch and see how it's run and see how friendly and helpful the people are. I mean, all of the clubs in the area have a loner gun if you want to come out and just try it. That's all you have to do. Just come out there and go, hey, I'm going to come out there for your match next weekend. Can I borrow one of your guns? And they'll say, absolutely. And they'll set them up and they will put them with an experienced shooter and let show them the ropes and kind of get their feet wet on it. But that's the biggest thing that I think that keeps people from coming out is not knowing what to expect. So they just need to contact somebody from a local club in their area, ask about a loaner gun if they don't have something already set up and go out there and have fun because I don't, I haven't found anybody, maybe one person over the years I've been doing this that is not a hundred percent helpful and willing to do anything for you and, and give you advice if you're doing something wrong. And this is the same in at extreme bench rest or RMAC, anything like that. Everybody is so helpful. You know, any question you have, they will, they will usually give you an honest answer on what you can do to improve. And, uh, you know, I mean, my first EBR, I was shooting out there against Mike Bricker, team center cut. And he was helping me out and giving me pointers. It's like, I go, hey, you're, you're loading mags, you know, during the speed event. How come you're not single loading? He's like, I don't know. I'm a little quicker. I go, I don't know. He goes, well, here's how I do it. I go, okay, well, I'll try it. You know, so very helpful anywhere you go. Do you have difficulty with your back or any of your body parts just after one of these field target events? Because I know that those suits that you guys put on, I forgot the actual name of it. It's skipping my memory right now, but they're to support your back and neck and all that. It's a tremendous amount of strain on your body throughout the day. That's probably the biggest challenge, right? Especially when you're getting older and getting up and down. It's it's the whole up and down thing for me. Uh, sometimes I'll be a little bit sore. It depends how much shooting preparation I do before. I try and go out and shoot a time or two a week, even if it's only 20 shots sitting down on my bum bag, getting up off my bum bag, standing, you know, just the whole up and down that really tires you out at the end of the day. But, uh, oh, I've had, I've had back surgery 20 years ago and, uh, I mean, it still gives me problems, but, uh, not enough to keep me from doing it. That's pretty impressive. I am sure, you know, is it Camden that he's a younger guy that does oh, Cameron Cameron? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I knew it was either Camden or Cameron, but I talked to him briefly and he can get so low on his, like sitting down with his legs folded and his back curled and then on the gun, he has a TX 200, I think. And yes. it was insane watching him do that. I'm like, man, that would just hurt my back. And I don't have any real significant back problems, but I was pretty surprised at his uh, ability to do that. It, he is. Uh, so he shoots up here with us too. He's from the Sacramento area. And uh, yeah, he, they call that the dead man position, basically just broken in half laying over. Uh, I've tried it and I don't find it to be as stable or maybe just because I can't stretch that far. <laughs> it makes me too uncomfortable that I can't get stable enough. So springers are a different category than PCPs inside the AFTA events, right? They are, they are. Okay. So you've got uh, your Springer class. And so Cameron shoots WFTF Springer. So he's shooting under 12 foot pounds. 
and shooting in the same positions that we shoot in. And you could shoot Springer and Hunter class with your bucket and sticks. And I, guys do very well at it. But generally, the guys that shoot Springer class are shooting under 12 foot-pounds because the guns get... Moved um, around by the recoil, the double recoil. Yes, more yeah. violent. More violent once you jack them up. But, uh, yeah, Springer class is tough. I've I've tried shooting Springer a little bit, and it's like, whoo, that, that's tough. I grew up on a Springer. I mean, that was the very first gun I had, and I had it for many, many years. I think it was a Daisy. My dad bought it for me, and I think it broke about four years ago. But, it, I mean, I, I put thousands, tens of thousands of rounds through that thing, 177. So I'm pretty good at Springer. I, I still like them. I had a HW95. That was the last one, but I just gave that to my father-in-law because I'm trying to get rid of things rather than get things. Uh, I, I tend to hoard them and keep them forever. I, I still got my old Benjamin 20 caliber pump that uh, my dad gave me probably when I was, I don't know, nine or ten. I guess that's kind of it. I think I think we're kind of naturally come to an end here. When it comes to, I guess this will be my last question. When it comes to field target, you were referencing someone can go out to the field, pick up a loaner gun, and that'll kind of get them an, an idea of what the sport's like. Do you have any recommendations for a beginner? Just the first gun they should get if they if they do like it. What's the first gun they should pick up that you would recommend? That's not a big budget gun, something that they can continue to try it out and just to make sure they like it. I probably the Marauder platform. I've seen a lot of guys still shooting them. And, a, a regulated. Well, no, some guys will even shoot unregulated, but uh, yeah, obviously a regulated Marauder would be the way to go. And I mean, they're fairly inexpensive. And as long as you've got a good barrel on it and it shoots well, I mean, it's, it's a great entry-level gun. You can go out there and, and get your feet wet with it. And if you really like it and think you could do better with a more expensive rifle, then they can upgrade after they've actually tried it out. And, and they can still keep that Marauder around for shooting birds or squirrels or whatever. But uh, it, that's a great entry-level platform. Yeah, I just and... uh, I just bought a Marauder this year because everyone always talks about it. So I bought one, and I had it came in. It was horrible. I mean, I got like five inch groups. It was horrible. I polished the barrel, the bolt, and the trigger. I haven't done anything else yet, but it shoots really nice now. Like very, very accurately. It's a twenty five cal, so nothing field target related, but it's it, it is actually a fun gun to shoot. Oh, it is. It is. I've I've got one in a little bullpup stock that I use for running around out here in the orchard and. Uh whacking squirrels with that are robbing all my nuts what's your plans for our mac and ebr and other events this year uh go and do the best i can <laughs> but, so, uh, so no, you, you are going to our mac then i am i am uh i'll tell you it's getting hard with our mac and ebr to get registered you have to set aside time in your day or your morning as soon as it opens you have to be on there to sign up for the events you want because the events fill so quick. It's almost like so, trying to get to the DMV, you know, appointment. Right. It's trying to get there <laughs> right at the right time before the line gets too big, but it, it is. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to go to RMAC and uh, EBR of course, and uh, do the best I can. We'll, we'll see how it goes. And where can people find and follow you? 
So I'm not real big in social media, but I did start an Instagram account just for my shooting stuff. And it's uh, for shooting at Instagram and it's the number four shooting. And uh, that's where I post, post all my stuff. I'm going to do some shooting this weekend and I got some new stuff in and uh, I'm going to post, post up some goodies that uh, just showed up in the mail. Did you see that? See how they do. I think you posted that Midwest Elite Air Gun magazine, the high capacity for the Delta or the Red Wolf. Uh, that's what showed up in the mail today. Is uh, Chris from Midwest Elite Air Guns uh, sent me one out to try? So I'm going to uh, put my Red Wolf back together and uh, clean the barrel and uh, test out that mag. So far, it looks great. The 22 version actually holds 34 rounds. Wow. Yeah, I, I had recorder the stud mag loader and he's behind stands behind FX. He just really loves the company and I, I respect that and all. But I had basically begged him, like, man, you gotta do this for the for the the, the Day State brand. I mean, I, I love Day State. I don't have one, but I was I was advocating for Day State. I was like, Oh, you need to do this. And he said that the number one thing that he was coming across was not being able to get a hold of one of the magazines. And I, I think I even sent a message to Day State UK. I'm like, hey, I have no dog in the fight, but this guy is a you know entrepreneur and he's an inventor. He, he he wants one of these magazines to check out the diameters, and I don't think it, anything ever happened. So then when I saw the Midwest guy come out with that, I'm like, that is genius because it's a whole open market. No one's come out with that. Yeah, it 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 is. It's genius, and then I really only had about 20 minutes to look at it before I started talking to you, and it's like. It's, it's great. It fits in. It'll go from both sides. You just load your pellets a different way in it, and it's a little belt fed in there, and it's like genius. Genius, yeah. and the quality quality looks great, and I'm going to uh, run it through its paces here, hopefully this weekend. And, you know, one thing I have to ask you is you said you don't have a day state. Why not? because <laughs> uh, i have two kids and a little baby on the way in a couple of weeks here so i have i have no De Niro for the for the, the for the lamborghini or the ferrari of rifles it was funny brian i think you're off air but brian said you got to talk to dave you got to talk to dave because he's he's like the ferrari expert of air rifles he's referring to the red wolf but he's like he's he's that guy like if you want to know anything about it you just got to talk to him about the red wolf because he knows it inside and out one thing i want to ask Brian mentioned that he's going to start doing maybe a competitive event out there. Are you a part of that at all, or are you going to be trying to help him out there? I'm not. Uh, so it's going to be down at the Fresno Air Rifle Club with uh, Stephen. I can't remember his last name. But uh, no, if they start holding some events down there, I definitely would like to go down there and uh, and shoot with them because, I mean, the more training we can get in, the, the better. And I need to train in different environments than what I train here because I don't end up with a lot of wind, open area wind coming through here in my backyard. So it's hard to practice 100 yards where I have a bunch of trees and stuff blocking the wind. So I need that full-on wind coming from all directions <laughs> if I want to practice for EBR and RMAC. Yeah, the EBR, the wind looked like as a spectator, that's the thing I was looking at the most because I had the ability to do that. So when everyone was out the range, I was walking back and forth, looking half the time at the wind. And it was a, a lot of variables. Like you couldn't rely on any one station being better because the circumstances of the wind would change every 15 minutes. And I, I had a few people that told me that they had dumped their mag, did really well, but then the wind died. And they're like, oh man, I would have done so much better if I hadn't dumped my mag as fast as I had, if I had held off to the latter 10 minutes, then 
they would have been better. But I mean, that's the hindsight. It always uh, is easy. You to never know. Up. I mean, a lot of people do that. A lot of people in field target will, because in field target, you only have uh, three minutes to shoot your lane, to shoot your four shots. So some people like sit there and it's windy, 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 and they'll wait and they'll wait and they may run out of time. Right. And then on the flip side, if you're at extreme bench rest, you could wait to the latter part of the round and then the wind picks up and you're really screwed. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, just choose your poison. You know, I mean, how do you want to shoot? Do you want to shoot fast when you have this consistent wind or do you want to wait for the wind or, I don't know. It it hasn't got me on the podium at the 100-yard events, so uh, I may have to change my strategy to fast and quick. Right. All right. Well, Dave, thank you so much for coming on the Atlas Arrogance podcast. It was a pleasure having you on. You're always welcome back on. I'm really glad we filled out that whole house and that whole team. So it's kind of a fun group of guys that I was able to record. Oh, yeah. We're fun. (laughs) Thanks thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Anytime. I'll see you at EBR probably. Absolutely. All right. See you then. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Atlas Airguns podcast. Make sure to like with a five-star rating, share, and subscribe. Have a question? Email atlasairguns at gmail.com.